All right, well, good morning, church. All right, well, this morning, we're going to be talking genealogies. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 36. We're going to be reading lots of names. We have done this before. We've had whole chapters, like chapter 5 and chapter 10, and today, chapter 36. The good news is, is that we're almost done with genealogies in the book of Genesis. We only have one more chapter, I believe. That's about 10 chapters up the road from now, I think. Uh, and then we'll be done with genealogies. So today, what, by reading this genealogy, what we're going to be doing is wrapping up Esau. His family tree is going to be uh, laid out for us before we continue on with Jacob and, of course, venture into the life and story of Joseph. Right? It tells us right at the beginning of this chapter that these are the generations of Esau. Esau was also called Eden, or Edom, sorry. And it's actually pronounced Edom in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew. Uh, so he's also called Edom. And it mentions it, just in case you forgot, it mentions it three times in this chapter, that Esau was also called Edom. And the word Edom is used nine times in this chapter alone. Now, if we rewind and we remember back when Esau was born, Right? It says that uh, he came out all red and his body like a hairy cloak. Right, So they called his name Esau. Well, Esau means hairy. That's what Esau means. But not too le- long after that, later in that chapter, Genesis chapter 25, uh, if you remember, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. Right, for I am exhausted. And then it says in parentheses there, it says, therefore his name was called Edom. Well, Edom or Edom in the Hebrew means red. That's what it means. So basically Esau has two names. One is hairy and the other is red. He's red and hairy. Right? That's that's Esau. Now the land where Esau would settle would be called Edom as well. And that was also because of the red sandstone, right? Here's, here's someone who's called red and hairy and ends up moving into the land that has red sandstone. It was obvious that he liked red, right? All right. Anyway, it was a mountainous land. The mountain Seir, as we've already read, is where, uh, Seir is where Esau settled. It's where he lived. And that land ex- extended from the Gulf of Agabah, which is, uh, uh, which is the gulf at the northern tip of the Red Sea, um, and extended to the foot of the Dead Sea. So that was the area of Edom. And it was a wild and it was a rugged region, but it had fruitful valleys within there. And uh, it contained many cities. And one of the cities that was within Edom uh, was the rock-hewn city named Sila, which we would know today probably as Petra. Right, which is the picture I have up here for us this morning. That's Petra. And this is one of the cities that was within Edom that was controlled by Esau for the most part. The, the Edomites, which would be the descendants of Esau, uh, lived in this land and lived in Petra for quite a while. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 36 this morning, the generations of Esau. And you're going to have to forgive me because I left my Bible on the table. What a good pastor I am. And I didn't recognize I left it uh, until after my wife had already got here. So I wasn't going to drive back home 
to go get it. But we are in Genesis chapter 36. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And like I said, it's a lot of names. And uh, it gives me just that much more opportunity to screw something up as far as pronunciation is concerned. Right? So these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibian the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebuith. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Again, reminding you. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibian, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Veda. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibama, the daughter of Ana, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Now, verse 20, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. They inhabited the land before Esau moved in. Esau married into this family by conquering them. Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, and the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manaheth, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibian. Ai and Ana. He is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibian, his father. These are the children of Ana, Dishon and Oholibama, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Ishban, Ethron, and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezar, Bilhan, Zavon, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Ana, Dishon, Ezar, and Dishon. <clears throat> Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah the Bozrah, reigned in his place. 
Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrekah reigned in his place, and Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Balhanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Balhanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau, and his wife's name was Mehitabal, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezhabab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Timon, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possessions. Whew. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning, and I put it in your hands, Lord, and I just give it to you, and I pray your words be spoken. I just thank you, Lord, for the, even in chapters like this, which just seemed to us to be a, a long list of names, there is something for us to learn, and there's an application for us to a, to put to our hearts and to our lives and how we live them today. So I thank you, Lord, and I pray that, again, that your spirit speak, Lord. We just give this morning to you, and we pray you bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The Edomites are mentioned somewhere around, just so you know, the Hebrew word for Edomites or Edomite is Edom. Okay? And the Hebrew word for Edom is Edom, right? So the same Hebrew word is used for Edom or Edomites or Edomite or whatever. So when you look to see how many times it's used, you have to look at all the different variations of the name. So the the Edomites are mentioned somewhere around 130 times in the Bible. They were an important neighbor to Israel. In a sense, they were, of course, family, okay, cousins, you know, relatives like that. That being said, they did not get along with Israel, okay? As most of the nations around Israel, they did not have great relations with Israel. Now, you might have thought that Jacob and Esau parted on good terms, right? Because we saw that when we read their reconciliation, it seemed that, you know, well, Esau, for one, no longer wanted to kill Jacob. So that was a good thing. Right, so you might have thought, well, they parted on good, good terms. And they may have parted on good terms between Esau and Jacob. Despite the fact that Jacob never really ever went to visit Esau, even though he told him he was going to, after they reconciled. But that's just Esau and Jacob. Okay, That's just two people. That has nothing to do with the descendants of Esau right, and the descendants of Jacob and any of the future relations between the Edomites and the Israelites. These two nations have been in conflict since before they were born. Right? Remember, rewind Genesis chapter 25 when Rebekah was asking, hey, what's going on with these two babies within my womb? God told her, he said, two nations, right? Two nations are in your womb. He's referring to the Edomites and he's referring to the Israelites, really. Right? Two nations are within your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Right? And of course, he's referring to, to Jacob and Esau. And, and, that's, and so these two nations have been in a struggle with each other since before they were even born. 
Esau, as it tells us in the book of Hebrews, was sexually immoral and he was unholy. Now the Edomites were a pagan nation, just like pretty much all the surrounding nations that would be around Israel. Of course, they worshiped pagan fertility gods and all these different things that, that were in, involved with that. There's nothing to tell us, even though that we could make a case for it, and we'll kind of get into that later. There's nothing really to tell us that Esau ever changed his ways or repented or turned to God. Okay? There's nothing to tell us that. We could make a case for that. And like I said, we'll get into that later, but there's nothing really to tell us that. But definitely his descendants didn't. They continued to be an unholy, immoral, right, nation, pagan nation. So, and we saw that kind of when it started. I mean, right here in this chapter, it starts with the wives of Esau. So it starts with him, you know, getting his first two wives, which was Ada and Aholibama. And they were from the Canaanites. And then, and it tells us, um, it was in Genesis 26, it says Esau was 40 years old. He took uh, Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And then we find out later in Genesis 28, it said that when he found out that his parents really did not like for them to have Canaanite wives, they were sending, remember, they sent Jacob away so that he would not marry one of the Canaanite women, that Esau was like, okay, well, I'm going to go marry another one. And he did that in, to spite his parents. Right? And he went and he married one of the daughters of Ishmael. Right? So he did that to spite his parents. And there was a, a blessing given to Esau, even though he did not get the blessing that Jacob did. Um, there was a blessing given to him by Isaac, and Isaac told him, he said, he said, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. And, and that was fulfilled in the fact that Esau did not live like in the lush, you know, beautiful land. He lived in the rugged mountainous terrain, right? He says, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And this what prophetic words that were spoken because it shows how the nation of the Edomites are going to grow in their relation with Israel and how they're going to live. Right? And they lived by the sword. He told Esau that he would live by the sword. Now, of course, we knew that Esau was a skillful hunter, as it tells us back in Genesis 25. Uh, that's one of the things that Isaac liked about him uh, you know, because he was Isaac's favorite. Um, but at the same time, we also know that he wanted to murder Jacob. So when it says that he's living by the sword, it wasn't just that he was a skillful hunter. He was also going to, in a sense, be warlike a lot. The nation was going to be a very warring nation. They would always be at conflict with other nations. And, and so that prophetic word given to him by Isaac foreshadows the future relations between the Edomites, Israel, and but not just Israel, other nations, around them as well, such as the Horites. The Horites were the earlier inhabitants of the land that the Edomites went in, that Esau went into, the land of Seir, and basically took as their land. It tells us that they destroyed the Edomites, right? That they were destroyed by the Edomites is what I mean. And now destroyed doesn't mean he killed them all because he actually married <laughs> into them. He took the daughters, they took their daughters for 
you know, his sons took their daughters for husbands and stuff like that. So he didn't kill them all, but he conquered them, which means he didn't move in peacefully. He moved in by the force, which meant he was what? He was living by the sword, right? So they went into the land. They needed a land to, to live in that could support his large family, his nation, basically, as it was growing. So he goes into the land of the Horites, and he moves in by force, and he takes over the land, and, and his sons take their daughters, and it was, and it was him. It was just a picture of... Esau and the Edomites living by the sword, and they continued to live this way. This was the way that they continued to live. Now, one of the ancient trade routes, and we have kind of discussed this before, back when we first talked about Esau, it was called the King's Highway, and it passed through Edom. Now, the King's Highway connected Africa to Mesopotamia, and it ran from Egypt across the Sinai Peninsula to Aqaba, then turned north across the Transjordan, and it went to Damascus and up to the Euphrates River. And, and it was one of the most lucrative trade routes that ran, and it ran right through Edom. So they benefited from that greatly. But concerning that trade route and concerning their relation with other nations, right? specifically Israel, if you go into Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21, you're going to see this. This is when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. Right? So Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. And he said, thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land and we will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, listen, we will go up by the highway. If we drink your water, I and my livestock, we will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them, that would be come out against Israel with a large army, with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. You notice how Moses talked to him. He said, listen, this is your brother. We are your brothers. We want passage through. And Edom said, no, you're not coming in our land. You're not coming through our land. You're not drinking our water. You're not grazing in our fields. You've got to go around. And if you even try, we're going to come against you. And he did, basically, brought the army out and told him, no, you're not coming through. Now, Moses approached him that way because God told them to. God told the Israelites, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, you shall not hate the Edomite, for he is your brother. So they treated them that way, as your brother. That didn't. But the Edomites didn't have to treat them that way. That was just how the Israelites were to treat them. So you see, Moses approached them as a brother. And yet Edom came out against them with a large army, with a strong force. And historically speaking, the two nations fought many, many wars against each other. And the Edomites regularly attacked Israel. It was very common. The Edomites lived by the sword. King Saul fought against the Edomites. 
And he also fought against the Amalekites. And why do I mention the Amalekites? Because as we read through those names, right, the Amalekites were the first nation that Israel fought when coming out of Egypt. It wasn't the Edomites, it was the Amalekites. And yet the father of the Amalekites is Amalek. Amalek was born to Eliphaz and his concubine Timnah, and Eliphaz was the son of Esau. So therefore the Amalekites are descendants of Esau, therefore technically, in some way, they're Edomites. Right? So you saw that back in verse 12, talking about Amalek. So therefore the Amaleks, right? The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. They come from the Edomites. Remember, the Amalekites are who God told Saul. He's told him, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. And Saul didn't do it, right? He took them three quarters of the way, nine-tenths of the way, eight-tenths of the way, and he didn't finish them off. And it cost King Saul his life, basically. And you can, you know, we can sit and discuss forever whether or not they killed Saul or Saul killed himself or however you have conflicting views. But basically it it cost King Saul his life for not fulfilling what God told him to do 100%. Right? Now later the Edomites would be conquered by Israel. Uh, David would establish garrisons in the land of Edom. And from those garrisons, they, had, they, had, they could see over the Edomite territory. They had control over the Edomite territory. They had access to the port on the water there at Ezion Geber on the Red Sea. Uh, King Solomon sent out many expeditions from this same port. Right? They had control of the land for quite a while. But after the reign of Solomon, and I'm not going to get into the entire history of the Edomites, but it was during the days of Joram, the son of Ahab, the Edomites revolted. You can find that story in 2 Kings chapter 8, I think. And, and they became an independent of Israel and they had some freedom again. Which again is part of that prophetic word that Isaac gave to Esau. Right? By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless you shall break his yoke from your neck. And we see that pattern throughout the relationship of the Edomites and the Israelites. Now later the, the Edomites would be subdued by the Assyrians And uh, then during the Maccabean Wars, the Edomites were conquered by the Jews again. They were forced to convert to Judaism. We have discussed some of this. Um, When they were converted to Judaism, this helped the Edomites maintain their hatred for Israel because they didn't want to do that, but they were forced to do that. And of course, when Greek became the common language in the area, the Edomites would then be called Idumeans. And with the rise of the Roman Empire, there was an Idumean whose father had converted to Judaism who was named the king of Judea and that Idumean was known as King Herod. And of course we know King Herod being an Edomite. Uh, but King Herod, feeling that his throne of course was threatened by the king of the Jews, attempted to kill Jesus by massacring all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under. And after Herod's death, the Idumean people slowly disappeared from history. Right? None of their language or their culture exists today. The Edomites have just, whew, right, vanished. And that's all fulfilling biblical history. It's all fulfilling biblical prophecy. Because God prophesied that the Edomites would be destroyed. We can go to Isaiah 34, verses 5 and 6. 
For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Eden. Edom. Ezekiel 35, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. And I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am the Lord. Joel chapter 3 verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. And then Malachi chapter 1, I have loved you says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left heritage to jackals, left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That's not something you really want to hear, right? I mean, you don't want to hear that the Lord is going to be angry with you forever. And he's going to lay waste to your nation He's going to make it desolate. And if you think you're going to rebuild it, you're just fooling yourself. Right? But one of the things we have to remember that the Lord is righteous and just in his ways. And so the Edomites, after an existence, you know, as a people for around 1,700 years, today have just utterly disappeared. Right? So we go over all this in this genealogy, kind of this history of the Edomites with all these names that we read and all this history, to show you a couple of things that I think is very important that plays into uh, what I think is the main thing we see coming out of this chapter. That's really one simple thing, which is that the Edomites became a mighty and powerful nation. It tells us in verse 31 that they had kings reigning over them long before Israel even had a king. Right? And all of Esau's sons became dukes or chiefs or princes, however you want to translate the word. Because right? it can be translated governor or captain, but it, mean, it can be chief of thousands, the Hebrew word for that. And so he was, it was an incredibly wealthy nation. You know, Esau moved to the hill country there at the beginning, moved to that country because his possessions were so great that the land could not support him and Jacob. Remember, Jacob was a large nation as well, basically. Right? So he had too much livestock. He had a very large household. He had been blessed. Esau had been blessed. Hey, he was the descendant of Abraham. Esau had been blessed, just as Jacob had been blessed. They were both large nations, so he had to move because of how great and how big they were. But if we go back to Genesis 25, and we kind of rewind to how this whole thing started, in a sense. We go back to the time when Jacob tricked Esau into selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. Right? And yes, I know, Jacob was buying something that was already his, and Esau was selling something that didn't belong to him. 
We know how it goes, right? But in Genesis 25, verse 32, Esau said, I'm about to die, right? He was dying of starvation. <laughs> Basically, he was really hungry. When he says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Right? What does it matter now? Give me, some, give me that bowl of stew, right? And what it meant was, what Esau was saying is that I despise birthrights, right? What do I care about any of that stuff? I mean, it means literally in the Hebrew that he held the birthright in contempt, right? Yet within that birthright was a spiritual blessing from God. Going back to Abraham, right? And even though the blessing had already been promised to Jacob in that sense, we see in this that Esau was only about one thing, and that was material things. He was, it was only about himself, how he benefited from it, right? It was all about his selfishness, right? It was all about the worldly things, and he had no desire, no desire for the things of God. None. He considered God's word worthless. He held it in contempt. Even later, when Jacob dresses up as Esau, right, and tricks his blind dad into giving him the blessing, and when Esau finds out, of course, Esau's all grieved, right? And he says, haven't you a blessing left for me, father? I mean, give me one too, father. And it says that Esau lift up his voice and wept. What was he crying for? Right? What was he crying for? Well, I can tell you that he wasn't crying because of anything that the Lord had promised spiritually. There was no spiritual value in that in this for him, he, that he saw or that he understood or that he accepted. He didn't see any of that, right? Esau still, at that time, still did not value his birthright, right? He still thought of it as nothing. What he valued, what he lamented, what he was crying for at that time was truly the material side of things, right? The firstborn, the blessings of the firstborn. What does the firstborn get? It gets that title of honor. He gets the great inheritance from his father, right? So it was the money, the wealth, the prestige, the honor. That's why he wanted his father's blessing. That's what he was hoping was still left for him. It had nothing to do with the promises of God. It had everything to do with the material riches that came from being the firstborn son. Well, guess what? The Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed him just as he wanted to be blessed. The Lord blessed him materialistically. Right? Because look how great of a nation they became. Look how big they were. Look at everything that they had. Everything that he truly wanted, really, that he was lamenting back when his brother tricked, you know, the dad into giving him the blessing, he got everything. And this whole chapter that we just read is a testimony to that. It's a testimony to that. He was blessed tremendously. He was blessed materialistically just as he wanted. But yet, in the end, it came to nothing. It came to absolutely nothing. It didn't help him. It didn't benefit him. Let me read you this quote, and I had to look this one up. It comes from the 1800s, and I honestly, I forgot to write down uh, who, wrote, who said this, or who wrote this. But uh, this is a quote concerning Edomites and Edom, and basically uh, how what happens, right? So and 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 so despised is Edom, 
and the memory of its greatness lost, that there is no record of antiquity that can so clearly show us what once it was in the days of its power, as we can now read in the page of prophecy its existing desolation. But in that place where kings kept their court, and where nobles assembled, and where manifest proofs of ancient opulence are concentrated, where princely habitations retaining their external grandeur, but bereft of all their splendor, still look as if fresh from the chisel. He's referring to, to that, right? When we think of Petra. And if you've seen the pictures of Petra, I mean, they look like they were made yesterday. You know? I mean, they're a fantastic work, right? So fresh from the chisel, even there no man dwells. It is given by lot to birds and beasts and reptiles. It is a court for owls, and scarcely are they ever frayed from their lonely habitation by the tread of a solitary traveler from a far distant land among deserted dwellings and desolated ruins. That's what it came to. Desolation. That's all that got him. That's all that got him. You see, what this chapter is showing us and, and what we're seeing within this chapter is the difference between spiritual blessings and material blessings. Between spiritual and material. And it reminded me of a verse, or a couple of verses as it may be, which is really simply this, Mark chapter 8, you probably know these verses. And calling, to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What did it profit Esau? Nothing. Right? I mean, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, and in the end, what did that bowl of soup get him? I mean, it was exactly what he wanted at the time. You have to understand, he got exactly what he wanted. This is important. But at what cost? I mean, was that bowl of soup his salvation? No. It was just a bowl of soup. Right? So the question that comes up is, should we as Christians... Expect only spiritual blessings or material, materialistic blessings? Does God bless us only spiritually or does he bless us materialistically as well? The truth is he blesses us both ways, right? He he blesses us both ways, but all things come through the spirit. So all blessings, regardless, are really spiritual blessings. But the problem lies is when we start to value materialistic things greater than the spiritual things, which was Esau's problem. He despised the spiritual. He only valued the materialistic things, right? Blessings aren't just for the spiritual realm, but we need to keep things in proper perspective, which as it tells us in James 1.17, which is that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. When you are blessed materialistically, that's a gift from God. It has nothing to do with you. That's a gift from God and his great love for you. 
The danger lies in thinking that if we aren't being blessed with material things, which usually comes down to money in many cases, right, that God isn't blessing us at all. That somehow God's blessing will always be tied with material things. And that's just a lie. God does bless us both spiritually and materialistically, but he doesn't just bless us materialistically. And sometimes he may not bless us materialistically in the way that we want or the way that we wish for or the way that we see happening possibly with other people, right? He may not bless you materialistically at all. But if you're in Christ, he has blessed you spiritually in a way that's far greater than anything he can ever give you materialistically, right? Right? Your your financial problems, your health-related problems, anything that you're going through aren't because of a lack of faith, right? Aren't because you haven't sown seeds to God, as some of those people will say, right? It's not because you haven't tithed regularly, right, to the church or whatever. Give me a break. It's none of that, right? Listen, if God never blesses you with a fancy house, or a sports car, or a million dollars, or whatever bowl of soup it is that you're looking for, right? If he never blesses you that way, that does not mean he has not blessed you, right? But the danger lies, the danger lies in the fact that we tend to value, just like Esau, the material things greater than spiritual things. And in that, if we don't see the material things the way we want them, we start to despise the spiritual. And that's the problem. And that's what this testifies to. See, Esau was blessed materialistically. He got everything that he wanted, right? If there was a thought that he wasn't going to get what he wanted, like earlier when, when Jacob tricked his father into the blessing, what did Esau do? Oh, that's okay, brother. You were supposed to have it anyway. I love you. Was that his response? No, his response was, I'm going to kill him. Right? That, was, that was his response. He wanted to kill his brother. But if Esau had known how blessed he was in God already, if he had had that foundation, which he obviously didn't have, then the material things wouldn't have mattered. Right? And maybe he did later. Like I said, we could make an argument for this. Right? Because remember, after 20 years of not being together, right, of Jacob basically hiding so that Esau wouldn't kill him, Jacob decides to come home, and he's coming home, of course, with a large family and lots of stuff. He had been blessed materialistically by God, but he knew it was from God. He gave glory to God for it. He's coming home, and they tell him, Esau's coming to see you, and Esau's coming with 400 men, right? And Jacob's like, he's coming to kill me. And so what does Esau do? Esau knows his brother, so what does he do? He sins all this livestock, right? He sends basically all this wealth ahead of him in groups for his brother Esau, right? Because he knows, hey, my brother loves stuff. He loves, the, he, he loves this stuff. So he sends it to his brother. And guess what? What does his brother tell him? His brother says, why did you send me all these things? What does he say? He says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So it's possible that at the end of Esau's life, that, yeah, he had a change of heart about something. It's possible. Because at the end, it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal to him anymore. Right? Maybe Esau learned how blessed he really was. Historically speaking, the Edomites didn't learn that. 
right? But maybe on a personal level, maybe Esau did. Listen, there is nothing that you can give God to make him love you more than he does. And there is nothing that you can receive materialistically or physically that is greater than what God has given you already. Which is what? His son, Jesus. Right. Almost like you read my notes. Right. Far too often we get mired down in the worldly aspect of things. When there are bills to pay and there's food to buy, trust me, groceries are going up, I understand. Right? It costs me three times as much to buy groceries now. I don't, I don't even make enough money to be able to afford to buy groceries for my kids because of the price that things are going up. The cost of everything has quadrupled. I understand, but we tend to get mired down in these worldly aspects of things. And what we see at that point is what we don't have. And we lose sight of what we have. Right? And we forget what God has given us. What did Paul say? Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Right? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Right? He says, and how does he follow that up? I can do all things through God. Right? What was Paul's secret? Jesus. Right? In Jesus, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? In Jesus, we have salvation. We have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. We have an inheritance, as it tells us in 1 Peter 1, 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. If you have all that in Christ Jesus, what more could you want? What more do you need? What bowl of soup compares? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So remember this. In the end, this is an important thing to remember. As far as the world is concerned and its desires, God will give them what they want. Just like he gave it to Esau. He'll give them exactly what they're looking for. If you continue to despise the spiritual blessings that God gives you because you're so focused, yeah, you know, hooked on the material things, eventually God's going to give you exactly what you want. But at what cost? Right? The world is is going to get exactly what they want. He will turn them over to their debased mind to do what should not be done. But what's that going to get them? Eternal destruction. Right? Desolation. Like Esau, like the Edomites, who aren't even you know, anything today, right? What does it profit the, a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Nothing, right? Nothing. But what do you gain by giving your life or surrendering your life to Jesus? Everything, right? Eternal life. So what would you rather have? I think the answer is easy, right? Right? Consider Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these words. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to speak them to us and help us live them out. I pray, Lord, that we just continue to focus on how you have blessed our lives and the great blessings that we have in you and not on whether or not you're making us healthy, wealthy, and wise, materially speaking, worldly speaking. Because we have so much in you 
there is nothing that we truly long for. There should be nothing that we truly long for. Do not let us, Lord, search and chase after bowls of soup that amount to nothing. Let's just continue to, to seek Jesus. We just thank you for this, Lord. We pray that you just continue to build us up and strengthen us and draw us closer to you and help us, Lord, be a light and help us just point people to the hope that's found in Christ Jesus during these days. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.